It was a small town by a small river and a small lake in a small northern part of a Midwest state. There wasn't so much wilderness around that you couldn't see the town. On the other hand, there wasn't so much town around that you couldn't see and feel and touch the wilderness. The town was full of fences to walk on and sidewalks to skate on and the muted cries and laughter of boys and girls full of costumed dreams and pumpkin spirits preparing for the greatest night of the year, better than Easter, better than Christmas, Halloween. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And we are back for our Halloween episode this year, recording in October 2018, and we're going to be talking about some more Ray Bradbury, namely The Halloween Tree, which is uh, kind of a young adult novel published in 1973, which then had a television movie adaptation in 1990-something. Three. Three. Okay, sweet. And of course, anytime we talk about Ray Bradbury, we have with us friend of the show, Dr. Phil Nichols. So Phil, thanks for joining us. Hello, it's good to be here again. It's always nice to have you. So, well, thank you. Um, and this is two times in one year because we talked about the <laughs> Fahrenheit four five one HBO film. So we did. Now mm, we're back to uh, talk about some something I didn't even know about. Actually, Colin brought this one up, and I, I had no idea that it even existed. So, huh. you want to talk about the origin of the book? Uh, well, we had been talking with Phil about doing Ray Bradbury stuff for quite a while, and I seem to remember once one or two years ago, he suggested that we either do the Halloween tree or something wicked this way comes for Halloween. Mm -hmm. Last year, we got superseded by a somewhat questionable movie that (laughs) purported to be Frankenstonian. Was that last year? That wasn't last year. Was that two years ago? I think it must have been. It's an awful thing getting old. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I remember discussion of doing something wicked this way comes, but I don't remember the Halloween tree. Oh. So I'm sure it was discussed and I just don't remember it. Like you said, it's an awful thing getting old. So, yeah. (laughs) So the book. Well, and so we have really uh, three published sources. We have the book from 1972. We have the movie from 1993. And although I've listened to it twice, I can't tell you the date of the Colonial Theater full cast audio recording, but that was also recommended to me by Phil. And uh, it's, it's excellent. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, we can talk about all three of those. Well, Phil, why don't you start with, uh, you know, if you have any opening statement about the Halloween tree in general, how about that? Sure. Um, I think the first thing to say is it's not science fiction. So uh, why are we covering this on this show? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we do what we want. (laughs) Breaking your own rules there. Um, It's a pure fantasy. Um, I think there's two ways of looking at the book. One is it's just a sort of an entertaining uh, romp uh, for children um, to do with Halloween and these children going off on an, on an exciting adventure, but also facing death, um, which puts a, a kind of a grim angle on it, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you could also see it as a as a, a didactic book, which is trying to teach uh, the reader about the origins of Halloween. Um, and it talks about the different um, rituals that either were ancestral to Halloween or are sort of analogues to Halloween in, in different cultures. Um, so it's a, it's a curious book for Bradbury to have written because he doesn't usually do um, sort of didactic stuff, but that's what this is, I think. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, kind that's... of what I was thinking too. I, did, I didn't 
expect this book from Ray Bradbury, given the other content that we've read of his. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. But it was fun to get the uh, historical background behind Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know about the England one, so Samhain was cool. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to talk about the pronunciation of that. The radio theater definitely has a different pronunciation that says something like Sawain. So it's got to be Gaelic or Welsh or something. It is It is Gaelic. And the, I've checked the pronunciation on a number of different websites. And it seems that Sawin or Sawin is the, the most common uh, pronunciation. Ah. But yeah, okay. you do hear you do hear people say Samhain, um, yeah. and usually that means they haven't looked up how to pronounce it. <laughs> right, right. Which which would have been all of us actually. Um, I I noticed it. I was listening to the radio theater, yeah, adaptation of it last night. Yeah, and uh, right. That's how I heard about it. Yeah, or how I heard it pronounced that way, and I thought, is that right? And I looked it up, and yes, indeed. So, <laughs> Got to teach you people to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I run through the, the story very quickly? Sure, yeah. Um, basically, it's Halloween night. We're in a small town in, um, well, in the Midwest. You can take this to be Greentown, Illinois, which is um, the town that Bradbury sets a lot of his stories in. So Dandelion Wine is set in Greentown. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes is set in Greentown. I don't think it's ever said in the book that it is Greentown, but the description matches identically to, to those other places. So we're in Greentown, Illinois, a um, bunch of children preparing for Halloween, going out trick-or-treating, and their friend, who's kind of the centre of the gang, um, Pipkin, um, is unable to join them because he's he appears to be ill. And he says, oh, you go on ahead, I'll catch up with you later. So they go off on their adventure and they end up at this sort of big haunted house where they encounter a mysterious Mr. Moundshroud. And he sort of takes them back through time and tries to um, show them what the origins of Halloween were. Um, so they go to ancient Egypt, they go to um, ancient Ireland, I think, and France, um, all over the place, uh, Mexico, and then they end up home and they, dis they they are reunited with Pipkin, their friend, who they've sort of been pursuing all the way through the story, um, kind of reunited with him with a, a little happy ending. And Mr. Moundshroud, who appears to be, he's, he's kind of the embodiment of death, I suppose. He's like a grim reaper. Mm -hmm. I don't think the book ever quite comes out and says that. Um, so the the... The implication, I think, is that he's been preparing to take Pipkin away if Pipkin doesn't recover from this illness. Um, but Pipkin does, so it's a happy ending. So there's your story. We like happy endings. <laughs> it was a uh, mostly accurate recounting of the story. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned ancient uh, Ireland and it was ancient England. They wanted... The was the kid dressed as the beggar wanted to go to Ireland, and then Mount oh, Trout was yes. like, "No, no, no time. We got to go to Mexico." Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I remember that part. But yeah, the the thing I thought was cool about the book is Mr. Mount Trout asking everybody why, like, why are you celebrating this? Why are you wearing what you're wearing? Mm. And that's what motivated to go to the the different areas that they went to, minus Ireland for the poor beggar kid. But what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah, and just the the whole idea that it's a kind of a tour through not not how all cultures celebrate Halloween, but the fact that there are mm -hmm. celebrations of the cycles of death and life and right. seasons through all cultures. Yeah, cool. that's right, that's right. Yeah. So the, the sort of parallels of Halloween um, in many cases. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Would yeah. you like me to talk about the 
uh, the origin of the book because we yes definitely we're talking about this as um as you traditionally do on this podcast you're talking about a book being adapted into a film but in fact it started out as a film (laughs) script (laughs) this is the the funny thing with bradbury things never start the way you think they they do um this one started out as a film script which then became a book which then became a film script um and which was then put back into a book so it's a bit weird um it popped into my head the other day. I once heard somebody say that um, a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg, and it, you know it's oh, all yeah. It, it's like, all it's all a matter of perspective. So <laughs> this isn't a, like this isn't a book adapted to a film. This is a, a script adapted to a book. Um, Bradbury started writing the script in about 1967, um, and it was prompted by um, a Charlie Brown special. Um, it, it's mm. the great pumpkin. Um, oh, yeah. right. Brad, Bradbury saw it and Chuck Jones, the animator saw it. And the next day they met Bradbury and Chuck Jones had never met. Um, Chuck Jones is the guy who did Roadrunner and Bugs Bunny and all of that stuff. Um, they'd never met before, but they, they happened to meet the day after, uh, the great pumpkin had been shown and they both were sort of angered by it because it promises to show the arrival of the great pumpkin but he never actually shows up and both of them were bitterly disappointed uh, that this special never fulfilled uh, the promise so they started talking about other ways of doing a halloween story and so chuck jones Mm. said to bradbury go and write me a script so so that's what bradbury did um and this was why while chuck jones was working um at mgm um now, they could never raise the money to make the film, and then very shortly after that anyway, MGM decided to close down its animation department. So um, this this great animated film was never made back in the 60s. Um, but the, the, the 1960s version of the script, it's pretty much what we have in the book without the Pipkin stuff. The Pipkin stuff just wasn't there in the original script, but it still had the oh, kids. Wow. Oh. Kids go okay. to the big house, they see Mount Trout, he takes them on a tour through history. So it's still the same set of events, but without the Pipkin thread running all the way through it. And I think that's the the big innovation in the book that makes the book hang together, is that you've got this yeah. um, pursuit of Pipkin. And then I think that the eventual film that we did get in 1993 um, makes even more of the Pipkin story um, and, and I think is is quite successful because of that. But going back even further, apparently Bradbury wrote or started writing a short story called The Halloween Tree back in 1959, but he never finished it and he never published it. Um, but he described in that story, I've, I've never actually seen it, I've only read about it, but in that story he describes um, this tree uh, with jack-o'-lanterns growing on it, and beneath the tree is a, a pile of leaves, and the leaves have roughly formed the shape of a, of a man, like, like a dead body, so it's as if the leaves fall off the tree and hmm. then bring rebirth, you know, it's a kind of a, a metaphorical thing. And then he did a painting in 1960, um, of that very same um, tree, and that hung around his house for a number of years. And so it's only when we get to 1967 oh, wow. <laughs> and the Great Pumpkin um, that he resurrects all of this and uh, brings it together into this this little script, which was never filmed. So that's wow. the origin. There you go. Yeah, that's kind of a wild history of adaptation because 
we've we've talked about this in the past where kind of the first way you encounter a story makes that the true story right yeah and so i see colin's mind just being blown here by the <laughs> idea that somehow pipkin who's obviously <laughs> the thread that connects the entire story and and mm -hmm. is the inciting incident for the story in a lot of ways yes um, yes not being in the original version of it that just that sounds completely foreign yeah yeah and it's and, to me and, and it, that that's what i saw in your eyes but Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely, and it it makes that first version even more didactic than um, any other version yes. that we have, um, and and the Pipkin thing brings more of a sense of it being a, a story, more of it being an adventure for the kids. Yeah, and you know that would make sense then for the movie, because the kids' relationship with Pipkin is even stronger, and that you know part of what they are supposed to do is rescue him. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, rescue him and protect him from Mound Shroud at the same time. Yes. Right, in the movie, definitely. Right. Yeah. In the book, yeah. I don't feel like it's quite so much there. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. But I did want to talk about Halloween traditions for, for any of us. And I have to admit to complete ignorance of <laughs> of Halloween and if it's celebrated in the UK at all. Oh, it is, I, yeah. I've always thought of it as an American holiday for some reason. Yeah, Um it's one of those things that didn't used to have much um, hold over people in, in the UK, um, probably because we had – well, I should correct that. In Scotland, apparently, it, it always was a big tradition, and, and perhaps Ireland as well. But um, in England, um, Halloween was not a, not a big thing. And um, for perhaps for a couple of hundred years, we had something very nearby to Halloween in the calendar, which was November the 5th. So that's when people here in England traditionally set bonfires and have fireworks um, and all of that, celebrating the gunpowder plot and the attempt to bring down. Oh, right. Um, right. So that, Guy that's, Fox Day. Yeah, that's right. So, so you're that's, saying that we should have done V for Vendetta at the same time. <laughs> kind of an adaptation of Halloween, right? We could, but I've, ne I've never seen it. So <laughs> Now, that, that's how it used to be. But I, what's happened over the last, I think, probably the last 20 years is, yeah, we've adopted the, the American practices to do with Halloween. But apparently those came from Scotland in the first place. And, and, and well, the sort of the Celtic countries, Scotland, Ireland, perhaps Wales as well. Um, so those were exported to the US and then re-imported um, back to the UK in the in the last 20 years. And I think it's partly related to the fact that um, anyone used to be able to buy fireworks, but now the, the sale of them is much more restricted and there's concerns about right. safety that you don't want children playing with the idea of fireworks. So I think attention has shifted instead to Halloween. And certainly if you go into any British um, supermarket, it's full of trick-or-treat stuff right now. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's it's the same it, as the US. It's funny the way holidays get exported. I remember when, when my wife and I were in Japan in 2000, we were there in early November, and there were portions of Tokyo that were completely decked out for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. It's when <laughs> evidently they love Christmas. So. Yes, they do. Wow. And do you know? Do you know what they do to celebrate on Christmas Day? I don't. They go and eat KFC. Oh, that's right. Yes, they do love their KFC. They do. <laughs> <laughs> the most American of things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but this is something I also wanted to talk about. Was the story here is very focused on a group of friends, you know, hanging out, riding bikes together. It reminds me of Stranger Things, right? Yes. Or stand by me, or stand by me, right? It, yep. it just reminds me of growing up, 
um, that was that, that was definitely my experience where I had a core group of friends. We'd hop on our bikes and we'd go create mayhem somewhere in in the city. You know, we'd go fishing, we'd go to the arcade, um, you know, be out to all hours and our parents weren't even worried. It's very different than today, right? If mm. if our boys had said, hey, dad, uh, we want to hop on bikes and, <laughs> and go right up into Portland, you know, we'd be like, um, no. But yeah, I'd, and I don't know if, I, I know you, you grew up in a smaller town than I did because I grew up in Anchorage, which is which a quite a large town, but it's very much like the town described in the book where there's, it's not too much town that you can't see the country, not too much country that there's no town. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, Cottage Grove, there's not a yeah. lot of town, right? <laughs> nope. Cottage Grove had 7,092 people <laughs> when I was growing up and uh, you could ride through the town on your bicycle from edge to edge, <laughs> 15 minutes. Wow. What yeah. about you, James? Did you, did you have a group of friends that you, you know? Yeah, we basically the same thing. Yeah. Okay. This this very much reminded me of Stranger Things, like you said. Yeah. We, we did the Halloween trick-or-treating, dressing mm -hmm. up, all that jazz. So for me on Halloween in Alaska, a lot of times you have snow on the ground by Halloween, but not every, not every time. But hmm. the times it seemed like when we didn't have snow, it was even colder for some reason. Like, like it had skipped over the snowing temperature and gone straight to the just <laughs> freeze your nethers off temperature mm -hmm. <laughs> and in in the 80s there were these very popular costumes with a with a mask and a plastic costume so just like a half you know elastic strap mask kind of thing yep, and i had an right. incredible hulk one um <laughs> that i was very proud of and i loved it and i put i put those plastic pants and stuff on and walked outside and took about three steps <laughs> and it just shattered because it was so cold <laughs> like the plastic oh just, just seized up and like the arms fell off wow yeah that was a, a uniquely Alaskan experience of, of Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually, th this time last year, I was actually in um, Indiana. Um, so I was there at Halloween time. Um, and that's the first time I've ever been in the US around Halloween. And I, I was quite amazed at how how much people dress their houses. Um, this, this was in... Um, Indianapolis and the suburbs around Indianapolis and it's amazing how many people had huge displays in their on their front lawns or their front yards you know um, and we have a bit of that in the UK but not very much and nowhere near as much as I saw there um, and that's what made me realize that although we've got the commercialism of Halloween we we, we still don't have the full-blown um, traditions right. that go with it the house decorating is a little more hit and miss, I think. You can often find people with pumpkins mm -hmm. outside or corn shucks. Uh, but but now, especially with LED lights and shaped lights, you can find people with their own version of the Halloween tree mm -hmm. with bloody icicles hanging across the rafters. Yeah. Um, it's just incredible <laughs> what people do now. Mm -hmm. Well, in our neighborhood, there's a house that always sets up a haunted house every year. And they have a huge lines like around the block. People come through and walk through the haunted house. It's kind of oh, really? crazy. Yeah. And outside the house, they'll, they'll keep like hot chocolate and tea and stuff like that. For, if, a while. You, for if you survive the haunted house. <laughs> Your last chocolate. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about the book. What do you think of the book? Oh, you know, it's, it's Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Just, you know, sit down and start reading it. It was a little different. We, we've read a lot of his stories and novels written towards adults. This yeah. was the first thing I'd read of his really aimed at, at children. And I think it's extremely successful. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's something I want to bring up when we get to the movie and I'll, I'll hold it till then. But like you mentioned, right, there's that nostalgia piece about being part of a group of kids on bicycles, going out and do things together. If you want to draw people into a book for the purpose of teaching them, that's a great way to do it um, for, for us. Yeah. Now, yeah. in today's culture, I don't know what that would look like. There yeah. are people that, that do – I mean, there are kids that still get together, but my kids – uh, especially now that they're older, they would much more likely to be on Facebook Messenger together, all in their own houses, <laughs> sharing stories and videos and books. And right, good point. Yeah. Well, Phil, what about you? What's what's your um, what's your background with this book? Um, <clears throat> my background with it is it's a book that I avoided for many years because because it's a children's book and I had no interest in it. Um, so of, of all the the Bradbury canon, um, it's probably one of the the last things of his that I came to. Hmm. Um, and I think the first time I read it, I wasn't that keen on it because it's so very different from yes. uh, the things that I actually liked. So it's it's a million miles away from Fahrenheit 451, for right. example, oh, yes. or The Martian Chronicles. So, yeah, it was not something that I was particularly interested in. I think I probably first read it about 20 years ago, something like that. But over time, um, I've had to had to read it a number of times just to familiarise myself with the full range of his works. And particularly, there was a, um, a book put out in 2005, I think it was, which was um, a four-text edition, a limited edition uh, version of the book that contains that original script that I referred to, um, the full and restored version of the novel, um, and then there's also Bradbury's manuscript of the novel, and then there's the Hanna Barbera cartoon script mm. as well. Um, so that that one volume um, really is one of the triggers for for my own um, sort of research because I I was very interested in adaptation, and that made me realise that there was a whole hidden story behind um, how Bradbury does his adaptations. Mm. So my interest in it is more academic than um, it's not really something I would read for pleasure but there are things about about it that i like i i, I think there's some really good descriptions in there um the 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 building of uh notre dame i think is is beautifully done mm -hmm. um the even the the bit set in mexico which for me is very familiar because bradbury has written about that so many times but even that is is quite beautifully done um so it's got lovely scenes um but as a work in itself, it was never something I was terribly interested in. <laughs> but I, I am still very interested in the adaptation. And when we get to talking about the film later, um, I'll, I'll, well, I'll say more about that then. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a bit less attached to it than some people. I think also it's, it's incredibly American, <laughs> um, which is, yes. it, it's, that's true of most of Bradbury's writing, but there are some things of his that you read and you think that's a bit over the top. Um, and, and this is one of his very over the top uh, works. It, it, it's yeah. overwritten in many places. I, I think it crosses over into almost Americana, which is that, that just kind yeah. of essentially yeah. American tale. Right. Yes. So James, what about you? What do you, what do you think of the book? Um, I enjoyed the more, what do you call it? Didactic version <laughs> or aspects of it. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> I liked learning about the, the history of Halloween and how they did things in Egypt and France and England and almost Ireland, but not quite. And then Mexico. Yeah. 
<laughs> just, just stuck on that. They didn't get to Ireland. Yeah, thing, I, know. So. <laughs> I liked it, but they didn't yeah. make it to Ireland. <laughs> but, but it made me think about the um, influence of Christianity across Europe and the, the, I guess the violent transitions between religions across the world. Yeah, that was interesting in the, mm-hmm. the chapter about Sawin. Sawin. Sawin, yep. And then how he described, yeah. uh, you know, this is what witch really means and right. why they all went away. I, I like, too, that it's at, at the base, it's very skeptical because Moundshroud says, no, the witches didn't mm-hmm. actually do any magic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah, it, it almost. It, I mean, it does. Um, I I don't know how accurate the information is in there. Mm-hmm. I, I I suspect the etymology of the word witch isn't correct, but I, I haven't actually looked it up to to see whether <laughs> yeah. it is. Um, and it does. Um, well, I was going to say it glosses over um, another aspect of the story of witchcraft, and and that is that it it seems to me that the um, the Protestant Reformation and um, witch hunting sort of um, linked together. You know the um, the whole um, Inquisition business was was all linked to ideas of of witches. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think there's a, a much bigger cultural and religious um, story to be told there. Sure. But I I, sure. I think he oh, just definitely. yeah I think so um, skates skates over the surface right. of it. I think. Mm-hmm. But I think what is interesting is that, that, in fact, there's hardly any mention of Christianity in there at all. So it is, if you think of it as a celebration, it is a celebration of um, all things pagan, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I, I guess actually some of the Me- the Mexican stuff is um, Christian-based and Notre Dame, of course, is yeah, Christian right. as well. Yeah, and it, um, it you know, gets a, a mention in kind of the, like James was saying, right, the parade of... Uh, the Romans come in and replace the the gods of the British Isles with with mm-hmm. their gods, and then and then Christianity comes yes. in and stamps out the the Roman gods, and mm-hmm. just kind of a, a progression, yeah, of that kind of thing. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I am not a fan of songs in books. I would there, agree with that one. There are a lot of songs <laughs> in this book, and so I thought I thought okay, I'm completely open to the radio play or the movie doing a better job with you know songs in the medium that they're meant for, which is audio. <laughs> and, and, um, whereas yeah. in books, I just, I, I'm kind of like, I, if you can't tell me your story without putting it into a song, then you're not telling it very well. <laughs> so I tend to skip songs. Um, I think, I think my problem with the book I, is I, I how do, do you know the what the melody is? Right. <laughs> Unless they're going to give you some sheet music to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Should be in the appendix, right? <laughs> you know, Colin rolled his eyes at me because <laughs> <laughs> he disagrees. It's okay. I disagree. That's my job on this podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> Dissenting opinion. Oh. Hey, Phil, you were going to break in and say something, and I think we cut you off. What What do you think the, the target audience is for the book? Having read it, what's, what's your impression? Who's it suited for? Hmm. I mean, it's the kind of book that I would have read to my son mm-hmm. uh, when he was little. Yeah. I, I feel, but, but I'm not sure that it's one that I would have given him to read. So right. I don't know. At what sort of age would you have done that? For me, probably eight, nine, ten. Yeah. Okay. That's, That's kind interesting. Of what I was thinking too. Because I, here's another fascinating fact for you: Bradbury wrote it for children of all ages. Mm. Um, that's the the phrase that's sometimes used. So he didn't have a particular age range in mind. It is for children, but mm. not for any particular age range. Mm-hmm. The original publisher wanted it to be for children aged ten. Mm-hmm. Or below. Mm. Okay. So some of the things that Brad 
some of the things that Bradbury put into the original manuscript, they wanted taking out. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. And, and one of the things that, I mean, this is partly down to personal taste on the part of the editor, but the, the editor wanted less intrusion of the, um, the author or the narrator mm. in the story. Mm. And he wanted it to, to be more of a transparent story of, of the kids. And I can understand that if you're writing or publishing a book for 10 year olds or eight year olds or seven year olds, um, you probably want it to be quite transparent to read mm -hmm. and, and, and less, less of those intrusions. Um, but curiously, when we get to the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, <laughs> that goes the other way. They, they wanted the author's intrusions, um, to be prominent huh. in there. And that's why Bradbury ends up being the, the voiceover. Um, narrator in the in the cartoon. This seems like a good time to transition to talking about the movie. Yes, I I'd like a Ray Bradbury voiceover. Yes, reading his words <laughs> yeah. in that rich way that he does. Although you thought it was Nimoy at first. I know. Yeah, I feel I so had, bad. I had to convince. <laughs> well, I I had listened to the the Bradbury read uh, Fahrenheit four five one not too long ago, so I was familiar mm. with what he sounds like. Yeah. and he does kind of sound like old Leonard Nimoy, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas Mountroud doesn't really sound like Nimoy. It's, no, he doesn't. It's, it's quite amazing. It's definitely, so this is, I kind of looking at the the book, I could see that, you know, 12 or 13 year olds could read it and enjoy it. I feel like the cartoon, the movie is targeted at a slightly younger audience, that they took some of the peril out of it. They yeah. took some of the ambiguity out of it as well. And they made Mountroud yes. into more of a cartoonishly Scooby-Doo kind of villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, he made him more villainous, I think. Yes. Well, he, even though just the way he's drawn, yeah, yeah, he no, doesn't look I understand. human, right? And he's he just sounds very cartoony. But but I feel like his role changed in the movie from the from the book. It did, and and this that's one thing that I wanted to talk about about the adaptation. And I want to get back. You had said there was something you want to talk about about the movie, so you're up next. So be be ready. Okay. So I remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I might have a list. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Perfect. Um, Colin came prepared. Uh, of course he did. Um, Mountroud, I feel like in the book, seems friendlier and doesn't seem as much like an adversary. He's just kind of there guiding them through the experience. And and it's never kind of explicitly said that he is anyone in particular, an incarnation of any you know force of nature or anything. And where in the film, they're much more transparent about, oh, yeah, by the way, Pipkin is in mortal peril. Pipkin may be dead. Uh, Mountshroud is definitely death or someone connected with death. Um, and it it takes some of that ambiguity out of it, some of the guessing out of it. And it might make it slightly less creepy. Because I feel like the scene in the book where he disappears, where Pipkin disappears in that uh, ravine is, is really kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. But at the same time, I think that it, it's much more apparent that there is a story going on. Um, whereas I think in the book, it's just, it's like one, one adventure after another. And mm. you sort of, well, when I'm reading, I'm sort of thinking, why are we doing this again? Right. <laughs> and apart from the, the, the didactic purpose of it, from a story point of view, you think, uh, what, what are they trying to achieve? Um, whereas I think the, the film actually makes that quite plain. Um, yes. And, and I think does it quite cleverly as well. No. And, and, any of that that I was saying, I'm not saying that in some way that makes the movie inferior. I think in a lot of ways, like you said, it, mm. it draws it into a more clear narrative arc because you have Mountshroud yeah. established yeah. as an antagonist in a lot of ways. You have 
yes. uh, Tom Skelton being kind of the hero mm-hmm. and and setting everything off by even suggesting to him, if you could let Pipkin go, that'd be a great trick. And and that is what sets off the entire adventure, right? That ends up in, in him letting Pipkin go. And, and even Tom comes up with the idea to trade in a year instead of Moundshroud bringing it up. Yes, and and I think that's a, a, a crucial difference between the two, and I I, I applaud that because it, it makes Tom the hero of the story, really. Um, otherwise, he, he's just a follower, right. along with all the other kids. But that that makes him um, an active protagonist. Yeah, yeah, and that was something I was trying to figure out: was do I find that more heroic that he sur- he he volunteered to surrender a year with no prompting, or mm. that he Mm-hmm. capitulated to it after it was suggested to him. And I think I think you're right, Phil, that, that it is more of a heroic act for him to come up with that. And mm-hmm. it's more kind of traditional storytelling where you have protagonist and antagonist because Tom kind of becomes the protagonist. Where in the in the yes. book there's nine kids, right? Well eight yeah. kids in Pipkin. Yeah, it's it's a journey where we watch a teacher it's like magic school bus, mm-hmm. right? Where the teacher takes people all through this story versus a story yep. that teaches as it's being told. Right. Yes. Yep. So one of the things I had wanted to talk about was um, the characterization of Moundshroud in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I've listened to Leonard Nimoy do several uh, audiobooks and radio plays, and mm-hmm. I, enjoy, I like his voice. I think it's incredible. I think yep. he acts very, very well. But when I read the book, just the way Moundshroud's the way he's written, mm-hmm. the words that he uses and the, the kind of cajoling, encouraging way he takes the kids through all these adventures, mm-hmm. it reminded me of Robert Preston in The Music Man. Mm. And I expected, <laughs> you know, he sounds like a carnival barker, mm-hmm. right? And in the end, he's like, hey, I brought you all the way here and Pipkin's right here. Now, how about you all give me a year of your life to save his? <laughs> going to seal the deal. Yes. Oh, like a con man or something? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we have the, yeah. the movie and it's a comic caricature. Mm-hmm. So you weren't necessarily a fan of that just because of the way you had laid it out in your head. Exactly. And that's one of my things, right? I read what I read or watch first that gets stuck in there yeah, and yeah. then changes from that become very mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no adaptation is ever going to get to do everything that everyone who read it saw in their heads, right? Right. It'd be impossible. Yeah. But I'm the one that really matters. So, can I <laughs> can I ask which which version of the book you've read? Oh, it is the uh, did, did yearling you, a, edition, a physical version, or a... yeah? Let me pull it up real quick. Yeah, let All me right. grab mine too. Does it have Does it have the illustrations in there? Sorry, what was that, Phil? Does it have illustrations? I don't know about Collins. So the version that James and I read. Um, let's see, where is it from? Collins does have some illustrations, but not as not as good as the version we read. Stuff. Yeah, the version <laughs> that we read is from two thousand, I believe. And yes, yeah. yeah. illustrated by Gris Grimley, and it has some spectacular illustrations in it. The one, oh, yeah, Sawain, okay, I think that's... is is amazing. It, it's I, I'd like a poster of that. Ah, now I haven't seen that version. Um, the the. The traditional version, the the original first edition, and many of the editions that have been published subsequently have these illustrations by Joe Munyani in there. Um, that yours, Colin? That's what I have. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's every every chapter has a little mask as a a little symbol mm-hmm. um, introducing the chapters, and scattered throughout the book, there's maybe half a dozen um, line drawings. And there's one or two of Moundshroud. There's one particular one. I'm just leafing through my copy now, trying to find it. I can't find it. Oh, it's actually on the 
um, on the title page, there's a, a Joe Mugnani line drawing of a drawing of Mount Shroud. Um, oh, nice! And okay, he looks yeah. he looks very similar to the one in the cartoon. So they the cartoon, does, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he so does. They, I didn't notice that. Yeah, so yeah, they clearly took some. Picture. So um, that that's why I asked that because I wondered if you'd read the book first, whether those illustrations influenced your interpretation of what Mount Shroud should look like. Um, or if you've seen if the book you've been reading doesn't have those illustrations, you might have a completely different image uh, of Mount Shroud to be going from. Yeah, I think that once I started imagining him as the uh, the con man, the the door to door salesman trying to sell a marching band to the kids, mm-hmm. um, I expected him to be more uh, more human and less caricatured, right? So to say, yeah, yeah. I pictured yeah. him as Robert England. <laughs> <laughs> but not in his Freddy Krueger makeup. <laughs> oh, so that's not bad, actually. That's not bad. I can tell you who Bradbury wanted to to be Mount Shroud, who he wanted for the voice, Christopher Lee. Oh, that would that would have been very different. <laughs> yeah, and uh, in fact, I, I have seen some comments from Bradbury that he he didn't really like the Nimoy performance at all. He thought it was too. Um, too corny, too cartoony. Hmm. Yeah, when we first meet Mount Shroud, his voice is actually pitched in more in Nimoy's normal register. But as the recording goes on, or as the play goes on, it gets pitched higher and higher and higher. There's yeah. more cackling, more he, giggling. He sounds like Skeletor from He Man. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what he reminded me of. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the narration. I felt like. I love Bradbury. I love his narration. I love the opening narration of it. I think that's that's really good, and it, mm-hmm. and it has it makes sense to be there. But there's a couple yeah. parts where I felt like he's just narrating exactly what is going on, and we didn't really need that. Like yeah. he's he's talking when when they're at Notre Dame and they're they're building that. He's describing precisely what the what the animation is showing. And I don't know if he recorded that narration before he saw the animation or what. And, and it sounded Phil like you said that they wanted more narration yeah they did and um, in this in the screenplay that he wrote because uh, we should make it clear that bradbury wrote the, the screenplay for the film um right. he he didn't specify that it was him he just put narrator um and there was okay. narration dotted th- throughout the sc- through the screenplay um mm-hmm. but as he was working with the producers and the director um they were saying we want more of that rich bradbury um, language and <laughs> we want you to do the voice um, and he was, wasn't necessarily of that opinion In I mean he was okay to do the voice but he he really echoed what you've just said that in some cases the narration will just be telling us what we can already see but I guess he was he was led by the producers who saw it a certain way right um, and most of those passages I, I haven't actually cross-checked them against the book but they do sound as if they are very close to what's in the book Yes. Yeah, given that Bradbury wrote the the screenplay, it would be hard to tell the difference unless you really cross-checked it like you talked about. That's true. But I I suspect that he after he did the final draft of the script, he probably went through it and strategically dropped in uh, bits of uh bits of narration from the novel, you know, just sort of typed yeah. them in to the, to the screenplay. But I haven't checked it closely enough to see if that's what actually happened. Um so this is Oh, go sorry. ahead. Sorry. I I was going to offer you some uh, insight into some of the changes that were made, uh, if you'd be interested okay. in that. 
Um, right, Colin, get out your list. <laughs> <laughs> because I've I've laid eyes on some studio memos. Now the, these are from the uh, archives, the Bradbury Archives at the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis, oh. uh, who I do some advisory work with. Um, so I've seen the, the documentation that survives from the making of the film, and there's a couple of versions of Bradbury's script in there, and then there are some extensive wow. notes wow. from the executive producer Mark Young. Um, cool. <laughs> and nearly all of the significant changes actually are suggested by Mark Young. So um, the the scene at the beginning um, in Bradbury's screenplay, um, we start off with Pipkin going off to hospital, but it's a scene with the family and him being ill and them saying he must go to hospital. But what we see in the film, they arrive at Pipkin's house and there's an ambulance and it's just shooting off into the distance straight away. That came from Mark right. Young. That was one of his suggestions. Um, Pipkin being more of a ghost um, who sort of fades away more and more as the story goes on. That came from Mark Young. Um, Pipkin stealing the pumpkin from the top of the Halloween tree, which represents his soul. That was Mark Young's idea. So there's a whole list of suggestions that um, Mark Young put together and they were taken on board and Bradbury used them in the rewriting of the script. So now this is something we don't often hear. We often hear writers being very upset when they get notes from producers saying, could you do this? Could you add this? Um, but in this case, it seems to have been a very um, fruitful collaboration, some very smart suggestions uh, coming forward. Mm -hmm. And, also, the, the reducing of the number of characters. You, you know in the book there's about eight, well, um, eight characters plus Pipkin, um, eight children. But in the film there's, what, four of them, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And they added a girl because this movie is woke. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's a, there's a story to that as well. Um, in Bradbury's original screenplay for this, there is a girl, but she kind of um, smuggles her way into the boys' gang because she dresses up mm. in a costume and obviously they can't tell that she's a girl. So she sort of smuggles her way in. So there's a, a, ah. another element to the story. But the, oh, right, the, because there's a character that isn't going to reveal who they are, right? It's a, yeah. It's a surprise yeah. to somebody wearing the costume, even in the That's book. That's right. Yes. Or somebody who doesn't reveal who they are. Yes. Um but the producers mm. said, no, that's, that, that's an unnecessary complication to the story. Just make it a girl from the beginning and, and be open about it. So, so that's what they did. So quite a lot of the, of the changes, which make the story much more obvious, you know, that there is a story and, um, bringing it to the forefront and, and re reversing that thing that we said before about, um, Tom, uh, offering up a year. Uh, saving Pipkin's life by giving up a year of his own life. Um, mm -hmm. or, nearly all of that seems to have come primarily from the executive producer. So interesting. But I think um, if you look at if you look at Bradbury's other works, um, there aren't a lot of female characters in Bradbury. He, he mm -hmm. tends to see the the world through you know his own um, boyhood eyes as much as anything. So there are right. very few females. Dandelion Wine doesn't. Well, it has a few female characters, but not 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 very many. Um, there's a few in the Martian Chronicles, but they're often in a kind of a very old-fashioned, sexist kind of way. Um, Fahrenheit 451 has got some very sharply drawn female characters, but those are 
a, a bit debatable in you know whether they're politically correct or or not um but certainly in the the stories set in childhood very few girls nearly always boys and that's just a reflection of his life growing up i think from from what i've read that was one of the things i i i have to say i didn't like it in the cartoon that they brought in a girl character and and maybe i just object to it because she's <laughs> always riding this bicycle but she's riding at the speed the boys are running Yes, yes. And so it just it doesn't make logical sense to me to have that happen. She's riding yeah. a broom though, right? She's dressed as a <laughs> later on. Yeah. Right. She's got brooms strapped to her bicycle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but the scene where they where they jump down into the ravine to go right. to the old house, right. they all jump and slide. She rides and I've right. ridden enough mount of bicycles <laughs> in that era down roads so you know, that, that that just could not happen. Oh yeah. No, you know, I've I've taken that route and it resulted in extreme testicular damage. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> Maybe that's well, why it's it's a girl in this instance. Right. No testicles. <laughs> that explains a lot, Seth. <laughs> hey, I got the one kid. <laughs> or should I say, that explains a lot, Seth. <laughs> and there's there's another issue that I, I, I go back and forth on, and it's just the idea that in the book each kid in a costume kind of participates in the scene when right. they go back to that part of time and that, that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the movie, each kid has to rescue Pipkin. Right. And there's usually a, a confession between the two, a reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that part. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. like Tom's. Tom's thing is, you know, I was always jealous because you were always the leader and I wanted to lead sometimes. Yeah. And then Pipkin goes, Tom, if you want to lead, I'd always let you lead. You know, because right. he's Pipkin, he's the best of boys. And yep. Yeah. I th- I think that I think that turns each of them into a character. Whereas in the book, they're they're just figures. They're people dressed as you know, one's dressed as a witch, one's dressed as a mummy. They're they're not really people. They are just figures. Mm. But in in the film, they're they are allowed to be individual characters and we get to know them. And because there are fewer of them, it's much easier to follow the the, the story and remember who's who. Um but yeah, I I think that's really good. And again, that's most of that has come from the the executive producer. Um, who suggested that they reduce the number of characters and they give each character a purpose in in relation to rescuing Pip in each of these different um, situations that they go to. So it's it's really streamlined the story, and made it very efficient. I think. I want to know who made the the script suggestion that the chubby kid should almost say nothing but "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> she just said it over and over and over. My wife was upstairs while we were watching it, and she's she's just like, "Really? That that seems like that's all he says." Well, just just for you, I'm going to look through the script because I've got it here. I'm just going to see if oh, I can cool. see and see some goshes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does strike me as a, a very Bradbury thing to do to make a character say gosh um or or, or often very old fashioned um words like cry criminy and things like that right um some, yeah, sometimes the yes they 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 often talk a bit like um uh, mr burns from the simpsons excellent <laughs> <laughs> Who could who could have been a model for Mountroud, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's got the chin for it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember there's one part where Mountroud is thinking and he actually grabs his whole chin. <laughs> and there's oh, chin yes. sticking out the end of his hand. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm looking for goshes and I haven't found very many. So uh, I don't know. I found one where Tom says, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? But that's the only one Great. I found. So they, those must have gone in in the later draft of the script rather than the version that I've got here. So brief aside about the radio play. In, in there, they, they several times say something like, gee, I don't know, or golly. you know. Um, so they, they definitely yeah. have that kind of almost verbal filler yes. that they start sentences with. <laughs> <laughs> Although we can talk more extensively about the radio play if, if we want to. Oh, it's slavishly faithful, has the songs in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, colonial I the songs in the radio play. Yeah, I really like how the Colonial Theater uh, added in uh, special effects via yeah. audio, uh, performed music. Uh, I don't know if they commissioned any pieces or if they took stock music to you know pad in and do transitions and stuff. All of that music was written for the for the purpose, yeah. Specially commissioned, yeah. They they spend wow. a lot of time doing that kind of stuff, yeah. It it is truly top notch. Yeah, I I agree. I I think it's one of the best um, adaptations of Bradbury, and and I say that as somebody who doesn't particularly care for the Halloween tree as a piece, but as an <laughs> adaptation, um, yeah, it's really very good, and um, yeah. it, it the songs make sense when they're turned into song. And they're, and they're not all done in the same style. They're, they <laughs> they take a different style depending on which part of the story we're in. Yeah, I think it's really good. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've I've heard uh, Leonard Nimoy in Alien Voices. Are you guys familiar with that troupe yeah. at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So James and Seth are shaking heads. So this if is you- the Ballad of Bil- Bilbo Baggins, right? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> no, this is post Star Trek. Okay. And uh John Delancey and Leonard Nimoy formed this troupe of voice actors and they did radio adaptations oh, wow. of oh. classic science fiction. Oh, so nice. the first one, uh, which was kind of the seminal one, was also broadcast simulcast on television. Hmm. So you could watch them perform it and the Foley artists were on stage and uh, mm. that'd be cool. There's a big oh, secret reveal which I won't tell you about in case you ever decide to go look up it on <laughs> look it up on YouTube. Um, but yeah, he does good voice acting. He's a good actor. He was a good actor. Yeah. Mm. It's an interesting difference there between the way they did it on that was was that called Alien Voices that one you've just been talking about? Yes. Yeah. Um, those were sort of done live. What Colonial does is they do most of the audio in post production. So the sound effects wow. and the music, they're, they're not performed uh, at the time of the voice performance. They're, they're done separately. So, yeah, it's very meticulous the way they do that work. And it takes a long time, uh, but very good. There's mm-hmm. actually just sort of one, one thing about the film um, that I did want to say, and that is I think the background paintings throughout the film are wonderful. The, the foreground characters, um, they are, they're a bit Scooby-Doo, but the backgrounds, I think they're really nice, especially <laughs> yeah. from right from the beginning when the narration talks about the small Illinois town. And we've got these lovely paintings of um, what really are – it's Waukegan, Illinois, which is Bradbury's hometown. Um, and, and the paintings do resemble the, the actual town of Waukegan. Um, but, yeah, so lovely backgrounds. Yeah, it the the – the change in style is a little jarring. Yeah. Yeah. Of the animation? Well, to go from the the nice background paintings where Ray is doing his his background narration mm-hmm. versus when you have the kids in in frame cuz like you said they kind of look like Scooby-Doo characters. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, anything else uh, we want to talk about? Anybody uh, James, do you have anything you about the movie that you noted down? You didn't take no. any notes, did you? No. No. 
<laughs> Colin, any did we satisfy your list? Is there is there a list of grievances you want to to air? Ninety five <laughs> theses theses you want to? That's October thirty first as well. So <laughs> no, actually I hit them all, and it was it was interesting to hear where those changes came from, and that even that there was a girl in the group uh, was in the original screenplay came out in the book unless she was the, the character that never revealed themselves kind of yep. as a nod back to his oh original sorry uh-huh. yeah I, I i should actually correct that yeah the the original original screenplay in from the 1960s it was all boys um oh. but the fir- the first draft of the hanna barbera screenplay which is a, a, a totally new screenplay by bradbury um the hanna barbera screenplay um had a girl and oh. then she was made more integral to the group in the actual film, so in the final draft of the screenplay. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Sorry, I, I interrupted all... your flow. No, then. no that's Sorry. okay. I, I miss some all-boy <laughs> Americana because I have boys. I am a boy. Um, <laughs> in today's culture, though, it it would need to be, uh, you know, multigendered, multiracial in order to be appreciable to the larger audience, and yeah. that's not a bad thing. It's just different. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I I found a a blog post about the Halloween tree. And there were a bunch of comments on it <laughs> saying things like, did Bradbury hate girls or something? <laughs> um, but I, I just kind of saw it as like, like Phil said earlier, it's, it's just like you're writing sort of your memory of, of, of your experience at that age. Right. And, um, yeah. you know, for me, there was a girl mixed in there and, and we all had sisters as well. But um, yeah, he didn't have the perspective. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Final thoughts, Phil? Final thoughts. I've, I said before that I've, I've had to read uh, the Halloween tree a number of times and I've, I've come to quite like it, I think. Um, and then this last week I've read it again. Um, and what I was reading was the, the so-called restored text because Bradbury's novel, when he submitted it, was much, well, a a few thousand words longer than the eventually published version. So I've been reading the restored version. Um, and yeah, I, I, I quite enjoy it. Um, but, and I quite enjoy the film as well. I, I hated that the first time I saw it as well because it looked very <laughs> cheap to me. Um, but the more I've watched it, the more I've come to appreciate the, the story structure. So yeah. So it's, it's, it's found a way into my heart, I think. <laughs> Final thoughts from anybody else or shall we rank them? I think we should rank. Rank. Yeah. All right. Well, how about Phil? Why don't you go first? I'm really torn. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna rank rank them equally. Okay. What I prefer about the book is the quality of the the prose on a on a sentence by sentence level. Yes. It, it there's some really beautiful writing and there's some really poetic writing, mm-hmm. but I don't think it actually hangs together as a as a book and as a story. The film, on the other hand brings the story to the forefront and makes it work. Um, but it's still a bit of a cheap cartoon, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm really torn. I, I'm going to rank them equally. You can include the radio theater in there as well, if you want. Oh, yeah. I, 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 okay. Then perhaps I'll put that in first place because <laughs> that, that has, it has the best of the book, um, and a gorgeous, lavish production. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'll put that in first place uh, right. because it is the book. It's it's an incredibly close adaptation. It's it's really mm-hmm. torn out of the pages of the book. Um, so yeah, so I think the the radio version is better than the book. Um, so that goes in first place, and then joint second are the book and the film. Okay, Colin. 
I'm going to do something very similar, uh, but I'm going to make a slight distinction between book and film. So the Colonial Radio Theater production is incredible. Uh, if you're listening to this, I found it for $7 on Amazon. O- order something else that you want. Stick that in there. Listen to it. You'll enjoy it. Uh, after that, I'm going to go book and then movie. And I think that's more a reflection of my adaptational originalness <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. talking down the movie. Yep. Right. Yeah. James? Well, as usual, I'm going to go completely different. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably go with the book, the radio play, and then the movie, I suppose. Okay. Because I really enjoyed reading the book and the, the artwork and the version that we had mm-hmm. and the prose and everything. And then, there, like Colin said with the radio play, it was the production was great. The voices, voice acting was awesome and all that. And then yeah. I agree with Phil on the cartoon. It's a bit cheap and all that. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm having a tough time with this one too because um, I have some problems with each each thing. In the radio play, it's – it's almost entirely great, but there are a couple points where I'm like, you couldn't have had that kid repeat that line one more time, but I guess they're doing it live. Right? <laughs> um, or maybe no. they're not. I don't know. But but there were a couple times where, where like th- that kid's line was just mailed in. Like he he read it without knowing what he was saying. Yeah. Like he read the words. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and I had a couple experiences like that too. Yeah. yeah. But but on the other hand, I, I, I feel like coming from an original screenplay – somehow that makes it so that the radio play is the natural outcome of that. And so I think, I think I'd rank that first. Plus it makes better use of the songs than the book does. (laughs) So yeah, then I I think I have to agree with Phil with the, with the movie and the book there, there's some, some flaws in there that kind of make them equal to me where I like a lot of what they did with the movie and making the, the through line a little, a little more obvious but that's also yeah. kind of a bad thing because it's it's spoon feeding it to the audience, right? Oh, mm-hmm. hey, look at this Pipkin. You can see through him. He's obviously not still alive. Where when I listened to the the radio play, I finally kind of picked up on the fact that when they went to see Pipkin the first time, he was still at home before going to the hospital. And then when he right. showed up at the ravine, he was at the hospital near death. And and I didn't pick that up until that third time. But I feel like the radio play really makes that that more plain. And in a, in a way that's really good. Whereas in the in the book, I didn't totally pick that up. And then the movie, it's you never have to make that assumption. It's just it's right, right. there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'd probably favor the book, I think, and then the movie. But they're close. So they're all good. I just I'm not ecstatic about any of them. But uh, but like Phil <laughs> said, the, the book does have some just beautiful passages uh, written by by Ray Bradbury, and the best of those make it into the narration in the radio play in the movie. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Anything else to do? Any other business? I would I would just return to the observation I made at the beginning. Um, in case anybody is confused. This is not science fiction. <laughs> do, <laughs> any, anybody listening to this who has never read it, do not go into this book thinking that it is science fiction. It is not. It's pure fantasy, but it has yes. some historical accuracy to it. Um, <laughs> but it's primarily and it's there's fantasy. There's time travel, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's time travel in the same way that uh, A Christmas Carol is time travel or It's a Wonderful Life is time travel. Yes. So, no, it's not science fiction. <laughs> yep. 
But the fact that we have covered A Christmas Carol and this Christmas we're going to do It's a Wonderful Life says this is very well within our range. (laughs) I think you need to change the strap line of your podcast then. (laughs) Oh, he's right. We we occasionally do change it. Um, Magic is just science unexplained. Exactly. (laughs) I think what happens is as we stray into fantasy and think about doing it more, Seth looks at the book Twilight and then pulls back in. Like, no, sorry, science fiction. We'll, we'll dabble in this other stuff, but not going into fantasy. Yes. Adapted genre fiction, right? Sure. <laughs> I've got one last thing to, to add, which is that the cartoon won an Emmy Award. That's right. And it's the the only Emmy that Bradbury ever received. Hmm. Yeah. Outstanding writing in an animated program. Oh. Ah, and I've actually seen that Emmy. I've actually... Um, I think I probably touched it as well, but I've seen it on a shelf in yeah. Indianapolis, which is where it li- now lives. Wow. All right. All right. Uh, well, we should sign off. And um, Phil, uh, thanks once again for, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to be, to be here. Yeah. Uh, I guess I can sign us off. I just haven't prepared anything. Oh. You want to take it, Colin? Oh. <laughs> can I wing one in the true Bradbury style? Uh, may the road rise up to meet you. Dot, 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 And then the little icon is flashing saying someone is writing a text. Someone is writing a text. Well, I remembered from the book when they talk about the inception of thinking of being having time to think about death. And that that is the very nature of Halloween. May the road rise up to meet you and may you be fully aware of your own mortality. Yes. May your path through the ravine be always smooth. Oh, oh. I like it. See, I knew we, should, we had a ringer here. I should have just called on him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you for your patience, Phil. <laughs> All right. I think that's good enough. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. If you can't be with the pumpkin you love, love the one you're with. <laughs> <laughs> By the oh, pricking of my thumb. <laughs> you took that in a direction I did not intend it. <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to editing this and being able to hear what you were saying when my when my Skype call dropped. <laughs> <laughs>